Hello, my name is George Bartley, and this is episode number 102 of Celebrate Poe, Spider-Man and Poe. In an earlier episode, I guess you could say I discounted Poe's short story of William Wilson. I felt that the story would be too long to read in its entirety in this podcast, at least right now, and I still feel it is not one of Poe's best works, but I've come to the realization that uh, it deserves a second look. And much like um, uh, the majority of Poe's works, the story has so many layers and meanings. And uh, do forgive me for the change in title for this episode. Originally, as I believe uh, you may remember from last week, I intended to use the title, Did William Wilson Have Multiple Personalities? And I still plan to deal with that question. But uh, when faced with some info about the uh, double motif in Pose Wilson and the double motif in Spider-Man, well, I just had to lead in with that angle. This week, a page from a comic book showing Spider-Man wearing his black suit for the first time sold for $3.36 million, making it the most valuable book of original comic book artwork. Of course, uh, we think of Spider-Man as usually a dependable force for good, but with the black suit from a symbiote, he basically developed an entire alternate personality. You see, in the Marvel Universe, a symbiote can envelop their hosts like costumes and create a parasitic bond that can influence their hosts. In this case, Spider-Man's mind. That scene is also depicted in the new Spider-Man movie, though I'm not sure if it's the first time that uh, Peter Parker wears a symbiote suit. Sp- uh, Spider-Man goes on to do some things that we... Uh, usually don't expect from Spider-Man in the movie, like getting snippy with Mary Jane and displaying an inflated ego to where he is really insufferable. In other words, Spider-Man shows characteristics of a person with a double personality. You might even say that Spider-Man in a black suit has a distinct alter ego, making him a doppelganger. Now, the word doppelganger is usually considered a look-alike or double of a living person who is completely unrelated. We're not talking brothers and sisters here. Uh, and uh, uh, Spider-Man, uh, when he is in the black cape, he definitely fits that bill. In most fiction, a doppelganger is portrayed as a ghostly or uncanny phenomenon and often means bad luck or at least an ominous future. Some stories treat a doppelganger as an evil twin. And I know that word doppelganger might sound strange, but it's basically a German word that means a double walker. One of the first and definitely most influential fictional doppelganger stories was written by Edgar Allan Poe in 1839. I admitted earlier that I almost dismissed the story and only looked at the sections about the narrator attending boarding school. But like much of Poe, the more you examine his works, the more you realize is there. 
Now, William Wilson is the story of a narrator whose double haunts him, or as Poe might have said in the South, haunts him from an early age. Remember that in the story, the narrator attends boarding school in England and becomes an excellent student uh, who's he's probably almost the best in his class. But there is one boy who appears to be better than him, and for some strange reason, that boy has the same name, William Wilson. It seems that this second William Wilson is always undermining the narrator in front of his classmates. So you have this narrator thinking of the second William Wilson as a rival, while at the same time, he's a little afraid of him. This becomes even stranger uh, when, uh, he, uh, when he learns uh, that uh, they joined the school on the same day and even dress in similar clothes. Many of the students, even they even believe that uh, they're brothers. In other words, the two boys look and act like each other. At first, Poe is not really clear, and I think this is deliberate, about whether the other person is his doppelganger, his actual double, or if the other person is just a fantasy, a figment of his imagination. In the story, the narrator says about his double, or William Wilson too, Wilson's rebellion was to me a source of the greatest embarrassment, the more so as, in spite of the bravado with which in public I made a point of treating him and his pretensions, I secretly felt that I feared him and could not help thinking the equality which he maintained so easily with myself, a proof of his true, a proof of his true superiority, since not to be overcome cost me a perpetual struggle. Yet, this superiority, even this equality, was in truth acknowledged by no one but myself. Our associates, by some unaccountable blindness, seemed not even to suspect it. But the first William Wilson becomes more and more intimidated by the second William Wilson. And as the story progresses, the narrator tries to be the dominant one. Or does he? The narrator, and by this I mean William Wilson one, sometimes makes some really bad decisions. Sometimes it seems that William Wilson two is able to possess another body, like a Spider-Man symbiote who is able to meld his mind with a superpower. I tell you, Poe was he was really ahead of his time in this way, but I don't think he was thinking about Spider-Man. But back to William Wilson. The confusing thing here is that the reader can only really see through the narrator's eyes, kind of like the murderer in the telltale heart. He could very well be an unreliable narrator. We really don't know to what extent. It's sometimes impossible, and I think this again was Poe's intent, for the reader to fully understand what is reality and what is the narrator's imagination. Again, you've got the telltale heart. Not surprisingly, the encounters between William Wilson I and Wilson II get weirder and weirder. So William Wilson I, say that ten times real fast, William Wilson I moves to another town. 
He busies himself with all kinds of activities and seems to totally forget about William Wilson, too. Then one night, and uh, this sounds like something straight out of a horror movie, I looked, and a numbness, an iciness of feeling instantly pervaded my frame. My breast heaved, my knees tottered, my whole spirit became possessed with an objectless yet intolerable horror. Gasping for breath, I lowered the lamp in still nearer proximity to the face. Was this the face of William Wilson? I saw indeed this was him. I gazed while my brain reeled with a multitude of incoherent thoughts. Not thus he appeared, assuredly not thus, in, in, in the vivacity of his waking hours. The same name, the same contour of person, the same day of arrival at the academy. And then his dogged and meaningless imitation of my gait, my voice, my habits, and my manner. Was it, in truth, within the bounds of human possibility that what I now saw was the result merely of the habitual practice of this sarcastic imitation? Awe-stricken and with a creeping shudder, I extinguished the lamp, passed silently from the chamber, and left at once the halls of that old academy, never to enter them again. Now, all these repressed memories of William Wilson, too, now come to the service, and the narrator moves to another boarding school, in this case, Eton. Then he goes on to Oxford, where he picks up a very dangerous habit, gambling. But the other William Wilson enters the scene and sees to it that his games don't go well. In other words, that he doesn't win. You could say that the second William Wilson is acting somewhat like a conscious conscience to keep the narrator from destructive habits. But the narrator, not surprisingly, resents William Wilson's too, his interference. It seems that where William Wilson one goes, William Wilson two destroys his happiness. I, I kind of get the image of a character in a cartoon with an angel on one shoulder telling him what to do and a devil on the other shoulder trying to tempt him. The narrator certainly has a lot of questions. Why, why is this Wilson two following me? What does he want? Why does he look and act like me? How does he always, always manage to find me? Why does he want to destroy my life? The narrator tries living in various cities, but nothing seems to help. In the words of the narrator, I fled in vain. My evil destiny pursued me as if in exultation and proved indeed that the exercise of its mysterious dominion had as yet only begun. Scarcely had I set foot in Paris, ere yet I had fresh evidence of the detestable interest taken by this Wilson in my concerns. Years flew, while I experienced no relief. Villain at Rome, with how untimely, yet how spectral an officiousness, steeped he in between me and my ambition. At Vienna, too, at Berlin, and at Moscow— where in truth had I not bitter cause to curse him within my heart? 
from his inscrutable tyranny did I at length flee, panic-stricken as from a pestilence, and to the very ends of the earth I fled in vain. And again, and again, in secret communion with my own spirit, would I demand the questions, Who is he? Whence came he? And, and what are his objects? But no answer was there found. Finally, the narrator is sick and tired of his double showing up at the worst time, the worst times, and he runs to Rome. Here he is invited to a masquerade. But surprise, surprise, the double follows him there too. I felt a light hand placed upon my shoulder and that ever-remembered low, damnable whisper with my ear. In an absolute frenzy of wrath, I turned at once upon him who had thus interrupted me and seized him violently by the collar. He was attired, as I had expected, in a costume altogether similar to my own, wearing a Spanish cloak of blue velvet, begirt around the waist with a crimson belt sustaining a rapier. A mask of black silk entirely covered his face. Scoundrel, I said, in a voice husky with rage, while every syllable I uttered seemed as new fuel to my fury. Scoundrel, impostor, accursed villain, you shall not, you, you shall not dog me unto death. Follow me, or, or I stab you where you stand. And I broke my way from the ballroom into a small antechamber adjoining, dragging him unresistingly with me as I went. Upon entering, I thrust him furiously from me. He staggered against the wall while I closed the door with an oath and commanded him to draw. He hesitated, but for an instant, then with a slight sigh, drew in silence and put himself upon his defense. The contest was brief indeed. I was frantic with every species of wild excitement and felt within my single arm the energy and power of a multitude. In a few seconds I forced him by sheer strength against the wainscoting and thus, getting him at mercy, plunged my sword with brute ferocity repeatedly through and through his bosom. At that instant some person tried the latch of the door. I hastened to prevent an intrusion, and then immediately returned to my dying antagonist. But what human language can adequately portray that astonishment, that horror which possessed me at the spectacle then presented to view? The brief moment in which I averted my eyes had been sufficient to produce, apparently, a material change in the arrangements at the upper or farther end of the room. A large mirror, so at first it seemed to me in my confusion, now stood where none had been perceptible before, and as I stepped up to it in extremity of terror, mine own image, but with features all pale and dabbled in blood, advanced to meet me with a feeble and tottering gait. Thus it appeared, I say, but was not. It was it was my antagonist. It, it was Wilson who then stood before me in the agonies of his dissolution. His mask and cloak lay where he had thrown them upon the floor. You have conquered, and I yield. Yet, henceforth, 
art thou also dead, dead to the world, to heaven, and to hope. In me didst thou exist, and in my death. See by this image which is thine own, how utterly thou hast murdered thyself. One interpretation is that throughout Poe's story, the two William Wilsons have fought over dominance, and eventually they consume each other. Now, Oscar Wilde was greatly influenced by Poe's works. His only novel, A Picture of Dorian Gray, is basically a variation on William Wilson and the theme of the double. In Dorian Gray, the double is not two sides of one person, but a living person who basically does what he wants and stays the same age while his portrait ages. The living Dorian Gray can party as much as he wants, destroy other people's lives, and live a genuinely disgusting life while his portrait deteriorates. When Dorian Gray eventually sees the condition of his portrait, he stabs it, resulting in his own death. The novel ends ironically with the real body of Dorian Gray now having deteriorated and the portrait young-looking again. The conclusion of the picture of Dorian Gray can be interpreted in much the same way. Here, the living character of Dorian Gray is now dead, and the image in the painting appears to be young. Except you can't exactly say living, because the image never was truly living. And yet another variation of the doppelganger, or double theme, is that of the individual who has several distinct identities. Now, I want to talk briefly about two excellent true story films based on individuals with multiple personality disorder, or as it is more recently called, disassociative disorder. The 1957 movie, The Three Faces of Eve, stars Joanne Woodward as a somewhat backwards Georgia housewife with three distinct personalities. They're all living in that one body. And she got an Academy Award for one of those performances that just takes your breath away. Then in 1976, Sally Field received an Emmy for playing Sybil. Another true story about a lady with uh, um, 18 personalities. In Sybil, Joanne Woodward plays the therapist. I recently saw The Three Faces of Eve on DVD and can highly recommend it. The movie is less than 90 minutes and gets right to the point. Sybil is over three hours long, and but still well worth seeing, uh, but if I had one movie to see, I would choose The Three Faces of Eve. I had seen Civil before, and remember that in both cases, uh, The Three Faces of Eve and Civil, the multiple personalities are an attempt to deal with traumatic, and in the case of Civil, torture and punishment that the individuals suffered when they were much younger. And an excellent fictional account of a person with disassociative disorder is the 2016 movie Split, 
with James McAvoy from The X-Files, starring as a ruthless villain with 24 personalities fighting for control. One of the personalities is known as The Beast, and he kidnaps and imprisons three teenage girls in an isolated underground facility. The Beast has experienced a history of childhood abuse, and eventually the personalities battle each other out in the movie. One has superhuman strength. You you won't find that in The Three Faces of Eve or Sybil, and uh, can scale walls. Now, at first, the movie might sound kind of hokey, but I think it's one of the best thrillers I've ever seen. If you haven't seen it, check out the movie Split. Now, please bear with me on this one. I feel childhood trauma could be relevant to the boarding school experiences in William Wilson. I'm going to read a passage from William Wilson. Now, remember... Poe frequently has passages with multiple meanings. But before I read uh, this, let me explain the meaning of feral. A feral, F-E-R-U-L-E, is a flat ruler used for punishing children. A few whacks of a feral were known to really, really hurt. So, okay, this is from the first part of William Wilson, where Poe is describing the school. The grounds were extensive, and a high and solid brick wall, topped with a bed of mortar and broken glass, encompassed the whole. The prison-like rampart formed the limit of our domain. Beyond it we saw, but thrice a week, once every Saturday afternoon, when attended by two ushers, we were permitted to take brief walks in a body through some of the neighboring fields. And twice during Sunday, when we were paraded in the same formal manner to the morning and evening service in the one church of the village. Of this church, the principal of our school was pastor. With how deep a spirit of wonder and perplexity was I want to regard him from our remote pew in the gallery, as, with step solemn and slow, he ascended the pulpit." This reverent man, with countenance so demurely benign, with robes so glossy and so clerically flowing, with wigs so minutely powdered, so rigid and so vast, could this be he who of late, with sour visage and in snuffy habiliments, habiliments meaning clothes, administered, feral in hand, the draconian laws of the academy, Oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution. I mean, at first glance, this really looks like Poe's being overdramatic, in the last part especially. Initially, he describes a portion of the grounds, then continues his description, rather a matter-of-factly, and ends with, This reverent man with countenance so demurely benign, with robes so glossy and so clerically flowing, with wigs so minutely powdered, so rigid and so vast, and basically contrasts the serious reverent with the lines, Could this be who, of late, with sour visage and in snuffy habiliments, administered feral in hand, the draconian laws of the academy, makes him sound rather cruel? And then Poe goes on to write, Oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution. 
That has to be one of the most melodramatic and over-the-top sentences I've ever read. Oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution. He sounds like this is something that is totally unsolvable. Oh, come on. I mean, this is really taking it hard. Uh, Unless the character of William Wilson or even Poe himself experienced abuse from a religious monster. No wonder he would have had such an extreme reaction. And were the actions of William Wilson later in the story a result of repressed memories? Edgar Poe had a way of understanding human nature and predicting the theories of such later minds as Freud and Jung. Of course, they didn't use the same language, but Poe seemed to understand human behavior and man's internal reactions. The great professor Harold Bloom has said about Shakespeare and his works that Shakespeare understands me better than I understand Shakespeare. I believe the same can be said about Edgar Poe and his works, that Poe understands me better than I understand Poe. Future episodes. In the next episode, I will I want to deal with the events surrounding the Allen family as they leave England and return to the United States. Then the week after that, I plan to have Mr. Poe and Mr. Shakespeare discuss their education a lot more similar than you might think. Both Poe and Shakespeare were said to concentrate on classical education and schemes of rhetoric that were common to both writers. We believe that Shakespeare studied rhetoric at the local school in Stratford-on-Avon and Poe, of course, at Stoke Newington, as well as the day schools he attended in Richmond, Virginia, when he returned to the United States. Sources for this episode include Edgar Allan Poe, a critical biography by author Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, a documentary life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight Thomas and David K. Jackson, The Reason for the Darkness of the Night by John Tresh, Poe in Place by Philip Edward Phillips, The Complete Works of Edgar Allan Poe by Edgar Allan Poe, edited by Thomas Alive Mabbitt, and lectures by Bocas Barbala of the Partium Christian University in Aradia, Romania. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.